0: Good morning, Sun Valley. And those of you who are over in the uh, Commons, we welcome you as well. It's gonna get hard to get used to that kind of thing, but um, I think we have to for a while, but we are here together this morning and we're so thankful. I know that I was overjoyed to hear that we could meet together again indoors. Um, Not that I didn't enjoy our outdoor uh, gatherings, those were also a great encouragement. Considering the lack that we had for a long time before that, but now we're here again together um, in this room, rejoicing together, and I can see it on your faces, at least the part of the faces I can see. From the eyes up, that's the important part, right? So uh, we're so thankful to be here. We're going to be looking at uh, Philippians chapter 4 this morning. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn there with me. Um, We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 19. And as we approach the final few verses of the book of Philippians, and be, by the way, we are towards the end of the book of Philippians, I know that what you remember about the last uh, eight months is not Philippians, but more about COVID, I'm certain, that uh, we have actually been studying Philippians during this time, and God has been gracious to us. We've actually been able to make way through this and learn many good lessons that actually apply to the current circumstances. Wouldn't you agree that the scriptures have actually applied to our circumstances in the midst of this pandemic that we've experienced? I think so. Uh, I, I hope so. But now here as we approach the final few verses of the book of Philippians, I want to remind you of what we've been studying. Uh, and there have been a few things that the apostle Paul wanted to communicate to his dear friends in the Philippian church. He loved them. They loved him. He was their planting pastor. Uh, He wanted to make sure that he was encouraging them as he should and their response to his teaching. First of all, he wanted to tell them, if you remember, in chapter one about his circumstances. He wrote this letter to make sure they knew how he was doing. He was in jail. He was in jail, but he was doing fine, and he actually was rejoicing in that condition. And it wasn't so much to get sympathy that, in fact, it was not at all to get sympathy Uh, from the Philippians but it was to simply let them know that even in dire circumstances you can be joyful right so that's why he told them about his condition of being a prisoner God takes care of us even in the midst of the worst circumstances and then you remember he wanted to thank them for their partnership in the gospel and he did that on a couple occasions in the book and now we're gonna see it here in these few verses at the end of chapter 4 um, particularly the gift that they had sent through Epaphroditus. Uh, the Philippians had a special place in the heart of Paul, and Paul had a special place in the heart of the Philippians. They were concerned that, that he had his needs met. They were concerned that the gospel was moving forward. And so Paul was rejoicing in their gift. Um, now, <clears throat> the, the underlying, I guess, thing, the underlying communication that Paul wanted the Philippian readers to hear and embrace was this idea of joyful gospel partnership. You've heard that before, haven't you? As we've studied this book, uh, we have Paul continually encouraging joyful gospel partnership. He wanted to warn them about things that would rob them of their joy and encourage them with things that would build up their joy or increase their joy. So the letter was written primarily for this reason, and everything that we've studied has supported that particular reason, building up joyful gospel partners. That's what I hope you've experienced as we've worked our way through this book verse by verse, joyful gospel partnership, realizing that you are a partner in the gospel of Jesus Christ in this time and place, actual partnering with the Apostle Paul in the spreading of the good news of Jesus Christ and in a joyful spirit. So that's what Paul intended to communicate to his readers in Philippi. And here, if you remember for the past three weeks, I've been preaching to you from the first nine verses of chapter four. And you remember what those are about, right? The first nine verses of chapter four, Paul was teaching how important unity and harmony are in Christian relationships, in home and church. It's critical that you are um, harmoniously relating to other believers in home and in church. If, if you're going to continue being a joyful gospel partner, this is a primary element. Being at peace with, being harmonious in your relationships with other believers. And I think we've experienced the opposite. I mean, if you've been a Christian for very long, we've we've in, experience disunity at one level or another and of course this disrupts our joy it disrupts our relationships and uh, actually impedes the gospel and so we, we can understand why Paul was teaching this uh, to the Philippians and writing it to them now there are some of course wonderful principles for God honoring gospel promoting harmony producing relationships here in these nine verses verses one through nine of chapter four So if you are struggling in the department of relationships and you have some maybe that you would describe as uh, uh, not harmonious, then I would encourage you to go back maybe and listen to those sermons again, maybe review them again, and see some of the principles that, that we taught you from Paul about developing and maintaining significant, harmonious Christian relationships, how important those are in home and church. Now we're going to turn our attention to verses 10 through 19. I'm going to read them for you, and I, and I think that you're going to recognize some of these verses. I suppose many of you have some of these verses, at least a couple of them, written on something in your home um, or car, and I'm certain you'll figure out which ones those are as I read them. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 19, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Are not those wonderful words? I mean, haven't you loved reading those words before today? They are very, very encouraging Christian concepts in here. As popular as some of these verses might be, within these verses lies Another critical issue in maintaining joy in the Christian life. In fact, I would be able to argue that these verses contain one of the most important principles for being a joyful Christian. So if consistent joy is attractive to you, which I think it is to most people, you may want to pay particular attention today and the next few weeks as we study these few verses in the middle of chapter 4. If we want to maintain our joy as as Christians, we must possess the virtue which Paul is addressing here in these verses. Lacking this virtue has been the reason for more heartaches than I think anything else in the Christian life. Uh, including, I think, lacking this virtue is a source of the majority of divorces, job changes or job losses, financial crisis, depression, suicide, and relationship struggles lacking the virtue addressed here. Amazingly, very little is said about this virtue in Christian circles, maybe it's not all that amazing considering how difficult it is to achieve and speaking confidently about something you haven't yourself achieved yet is always a challenge. Some might call that hypocrisy, but uh, if you're a pastor, given the responsibility to teach the scriptures, this isn't uncommon you you come across things regularly that you have not yet mastered and yet are required to preach and teach them. And so here I am trying to tell you something that I have not yet mastered. That's don't don't call me a hypocrite, call me a faithful preacher. All right? If you'd like. To call me something. <laughs> so, anyways, very few people can speak from a position of success on the topic covered in these verses and I want to say up front that I'm preaching to myself today as much as I'm preaching to you. And I could say that I, I, I do that every Sunday. But uh, we can't skip this because I haven't achieved perfect success in this and, and it might you know, bring you some discomfort to hear these things. I think we need to be faithful to the scriptures and preach them as they were intended to be understood, right, and so we do that. We move forward in faith, hoping that God will be honored and we will be blessed. So the virtue I'm talking about, if you haven't figured it out yet, is contentment. Contentment is this fundamental virtue in the Christian life that allows ongoing joy in the midst of anything. This is is something that, that is foreign to many of us, even Christians. Being genuinely content, being at total peace with life as it is, with our circumstances, with the conditions we find ourselves, all listen with a joyful spirit. That's why it's so uncommon. Many of us, because of our heritage, can produce the stiff upper lip. Many of us can push through. But that's not what biblical contentment is talking about. Biblical contentment is talking about joyful embrace of the things that we encounter so let's let's consider this elusive some would say impossible virtue uh, from the words here of the apostle paul what is this contentment that he speaks of and is it truly attainable i mean there's no use talking about it preaching about it if it's not something that you and i can experience right we want to be practical christians so they got to answer the question is this attainable is Paul really saying that without this virtue of contentment, we really cannot be joyful gospel partners? Is that what he's saying? Well, I want to address all these questions in this sermon and in the couple that will follow. Um, but in order to start at a place uh, of mutual understanding, I want to give you a, a definition of contentment. Okay? Definition of contentment. What do we do when we want a definition? We go to the dictionary. I went to the dictionary to look up the definition of contentment, and it said this, the state of being content. Isn't that helpful? That's very helpful. So I had to go look up the word content, which was close, and it says this, satisfaction, ease of mind, satisfied with what one has or is. That's a little better. That's a little closer to what we're thinking about or what what I want you to think about. But it's not complete. In fact, in order to find a a definition that I felt comfortable with, I had to go all the way back to a long gone Puritan, a guy named Jeremiah Burroughs. Jeremiah Burroughs. And he has this definition. I think I included it in your outline, in your bulletin. Um, But here's what Burroughs defines contentment with. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Boy, that's a mindful, isn't it? That that gives you a lot to think about. Let me read it again. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I want to uh, dissect that definition before we move into the exposition of the first couple of verses 10 and 11. All right? I want to dissect this definition because dissect this definition because I think it's very helpful in uh, putting both you and me on the same page when it comes to understanding biblical contentment. Okay, so let's, let's, let's take this definition apart. First, it's a sweet frame. It is a sweet frame. In our day, if you say I'm content, what are you saying? You're saying, uh, it's okay, I'll put it up with it, I'll survive, uh, I've settled on this, it's, you know, that's my lot, you know, kind of like Eeyore. Um, but the contentment that Paul is speaking of, the contentment that I want you to embrace, I want you to experience, uh, is something different than that. It's, it's sweet, It's sweet to the taste. It's attractive to the heart. It's something that we want to pursue because we know connected to that is joy. And I guess a way to describe this would be to say no one is forced to eat ice cream. Have you ever been forced to eat ice cream? Maybe pistachio nut ice cream, but not real ice cream, right? No one's forced to eat real ice cream. Why? Because it's sweet to the taste. We love it. And so we are drawn to it, just like genuine contentment. It's sweet. Next, Burrow says it's inward. It's an inward frame, not just a sweet frame, an inward frame. In Psalm 62, verse 5, the psalmist says, For God alone, O my soul, that inward thing, O my soul, wait in silence. For God alone, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. It's, it's an inward thing, not an external thing that we're describing when we're talking about contentment. A person can seem calm on the outside, right? We all know people like that. Maybe we are people like that, but inside there's just turmoil going on, something you can't see. It's kind of like um, Sunday shoes. Maybe I just have cheap shoes, but when I get home, one of the first things I do is take off my shoes and sit back on the couch and go, oh, my feet are killing me. Okay, it's because on the outside, these shoes look great, but on the inside, my feet are aching. That's the, the, def, the difference here. With contentment, there's an inward frame that's at peace. It's not, it's not so much seen on the outside. It, it, it can be, but it's not so much. It's a, a real difference between outward demeanor and inward reality. It, the contentment in in view in Philippians 4 here is is an inward thing. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's it's different than outward stuff. In fact, if, if attainment of true contentment were as easy as staying calm outwardly, it wouldn't require much learning, right? And Paul here said in these verses twice that he had to learn contentment. The Apostle Paul had to learn contentment. So it's sweet, What is it? It's sweet, it's inward. Thirdly, it's quiet. There is no internal storm raging in opposition to the unsettling things that we're experiencing. It's it's quiet. It's a quiet frame. It, It quietly accepts trials as from the hand of God. When Jesus said, take up your cross daily, we understood that to imply that we will have crosses to take up daily. It's a quiet, accepting frame. Joseph saw this in his trials throughout his life, didn't he? He wasn't bucking the system and, and, and angry with God. He acknowledged that it was from God. He had a quiet frame about it all. It quietly appeals to God. Now, this this may be a bit controversial to you. Maybe not. Maybe it'll be a relief to you. But I want to suggest to you that quietness, uh, that frame that is quiet, doesn't mean you can't ask God for relief. A quiet frame, it's allowed to pursue relief from God. It's it's allowed to go to trusted friends for relief from unsettling things that you're experiencing. You remember Job? He sought relief from his circumstances from God. He did that the right way. Elijah, on the other hand, sought relief from God in the wrong way. Uh, Job was Humble, content, and quiet. Elijah was loud and demanding. So, so it quietly appeals to God for relief. It quietly looks for ways of escape, not by manipulation, not by forcing open doors to get your way, to short circuit the process, to eliminate the pain. It's quiet in its looking for escape. Understanding that our trials are a gift from God for our good, for our joy, for our sanctification. And if it's quiet, if it's quiet, it doesn't complain. Do you remember the people of Israel? Would you describe them as a quiet people when it came to their trials? No, at the drop of a hat, anything uncomfortable, they were complaining about, right? This is what the people of Israel did. This This is what the Exodus is about. God dealing with their attitudes. Constant complaining against the will of God. If, we're, if it were difficult, they complain. and we, I guess we can say at this point, if you have a quiet spirit, it doesn't complain. Difficulty doesn't give the Christian a right to complain. It's, it's not okay to say, you know, I'm, this is just tearing me up. So, eh, 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 but it's so hard. And it's like, it's, if it's quiet, it's not irritated, it's not worried. If it's quiet, it's not distracted from regular God-honoring living. It doesn't, you know, because of trial, because of difficult, because of hardness, give up on responsibilities that every Christian has. Many times when we encounter difficulty or trials that, that test our contentment, we can hardly function. Are you one of those types? We lose focus, we get distracted from all of our commitments and responsibilities, we get derailed, we can't really do what we've said we would, uh, we, we we call the the nursery director and say I'm out. Things are going crazy at home. I'm not going to do this today or tomorrow. But with contentment, we can continue on in the responsibilities that God has given us without interruption, knowing that God God is behind our circumstances. You remember the story of Nehemiah, right? He was a, a guy that was brought in from from slavery out there or where he was in Babylon and sent to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And uh, he had an enemy in the the Judean area named Sanballat who wanted to disrupt everything the Jews were doing. He didn't want them to rebuild the wall, didn't want them to regain any kind of protection. And so Sanballat was threatening, you know, doing all sorts of stuff, making life difficult, uh, causing discomfort, to Nehemiah and the Israelites. And uh, you remember Sanballat invited Nehemiah away from Jerusalem so that they could have tea uh, someplace. And what did Nehemiah respond with? He said, I cannot be distracted from what God has called me to. Even though you're trying to make things difficult for me, I cannot be distracted. God has called me to make a wall, I'm gonna make a wall. What's the point? When we get distracted by things, when we get in the midst of disturbing circumstances, uncomfortable circumstances? Do we easily give up on what we've been called to do? We're each called to do certain things as Christian men and women. Do we give up on those things as soon as things become uncomfortable in life? Something to consider if you're gonna evaluate the level of your contentment. There are so many examples of contented people in scripture. You remember when Elijah was tempted to despair, after he got this complaining out of his system, God reminded Elijah of his purposes. The disciples in the storm on the Sea of Galilee, fretting all over the place, tempted to despair. Jesus taught them, in times of crisis, you trust me. And then, of course, King David, before he was king, had all sorts of opportunity to be tempted to discouragement, despair. And yet he looked to his Savior. So if it's quiet, it doesn't resort to sin to get relief as Saul did. Um, he went to a medium to talk to a dead Samuel. Saul went and made a sacrifice instead of waiting for Samuel. He doesn't resort to sin. Have you ever noticed that when, when you're facing difficult and challenging things? Temptation seems a lot stronger to do something just to bring comfort. You ever experienced that? Well, this biblical contentment that Paul is writing about that I want you to embrace and experience um, really, in, I guess, builds up the defenses against that kind of thing. If you're content, you won't fall for that, that sin of whatever to distract yourself. If it's quiet, it won't rebel against God's plan. So again, where are we? We're talking about Jeremiah Burroughs' definition of contentment. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame. Let's look at that. It's a gracious frame of spirit. It's sweet, it's inward, it's quiet, and it's a gracious frame. What does this mean? Well, I I think what Burroughs meant is that grace is central to how we deal with our circumstances. We walk the path of grace. Grace, of course, is a gift from God, as we read of in Ephesians chapter two. It's the basis of our salvation, but God's grace, when applied to the Christian's life, applied to the Christian's trials, is the foundation for contentment. Grace is the road on which the soul travels through the process of sanctifying trials. The more you've walked faithfully on this path of grace with Christ, the more gracious frame or gracious spirit you'll possess, which in turn will give you more ability to be content in each and every one of these difficult times that we face. Grace brings with it a proper sense of God's character. Before you knew Christ, before he gave you grace in Christ, Your perception of God was different than it is now, once you know him. Once you have grace, it it brings with it a proper sense of God's character. It affirms God's sovereignty. It affirms his righteousness, his wisdom, his goodness and love. Those things you didn't know about God, now you do because of grace. Grace also brings with it a proper sense of ourselves. You know that you understand yourself a lot better now that you see yourself from God's perspective, right? From a grace perspective. Someone who's in need, someone who is poor, who is ignorant of what it takes to transform ourselves to ignorant of the future. Grace underscores God's sovereignty over the things. Grace underscores our creatureliness under or, or in these things. Grace brings with it a true submission and surrender to the will of our Creator. And so we, we humbly acknowledge our need and dependency on God and trust his sustenance and His activity in our lives to bring about His will. This is what contentment does. This is what grace travels on. If there is ever a time where grace must be evident in our frame or our spirit, it's when trials can overwhelm us. That's when we need this. Not when things are going great. And we'll get to that in a minute. So when you, when you witness a person, maybe you're examining yourself, and you see yourself going through dark water, but, and you remain at peace and content, I think it's, it's evidence of active grace in your life. On the other hand, if you witness those same circumstances, but you experience bucking, fighting, distress, depression, all this stuff, it's evidence of either a lack of grace or presence of sin. Now, I want you to think about, I'm going to try to draw this together here for you so they understand where I'm going and why I'm fleshing out Burroughs' definition. When someone is discouraged, and you bring them something to encourage them, something physical, maybe a gift of some kind, and that thing does its job, it encourages them, then their frame is not based on what's inner, but on what's outward, does that make sense? So it takes something external to bring about contentment, instead of something that's internal. What Paul's talking about, what Burroughs is talking about, what I'm trying to communicate to you, is the contentment that we're pursuing is inward, not dependent on outward things. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong for you to you know, do something or give something to someone who's discouraged. I think that's good, and you should do that. I'm simply saying the difference between inward and outward contentment can't, cannot be... Uh, misunderstood if we're going to truly embrace and experience this biblical contentment. It, we cannot be dependent on external things to change our outlook, to change our demeanor. But we must be dependent upon the, a spirit, our spirit, that is, is surviving on the grace of God. Now, I'm going to spend a few weeks here fleshing all this out, so don't worry if you don't get it immediately here. Um, It'll come. The difference between contentment that's inward and contentment that's outward is that outward contentment comes from things or circumstances, and those things can cheer even an unbeliever, right? If everything's going your way, then you really don't need contentment, biblical contentment. So we're not talking about external things. Godly contentment's not a natural frame. It's not something you're born with. It's something you learn, as the Apostle Paul did. It's not because you have a stiff upper lip that you're content. It's an internal thing that's oriented around and received from grace, God's grace. And then the final phrase in Burroughs' definition is this, it freely submits to and delights in God's fatherly disposal or God's fatherly oversight, or God's fatherly work in your life. It submits to and delights in those things. That's hard to do, isn't it? Easy to read, but it's hard to do. And here's where we're going to move into our exposition of Philippians 4.10. The contented, grace-affected heart is quickly won over by God and His grace, it doesn't need a lot of prodding. God moves us Godward in Christ-like, um, I think, with ease when His contentment, based on His grace, is evident in our lives. Unlike Jacob, you remember at the Jabbok River, uh, that process was painful for Jacob. He wrestled with God all night. And the only way that that Jacob would submit to God is when God forced him to say uncle, basically, when he dislocated his hip socket. That's not what we're pursuing here. We're pursuing a, a responsive, free, and delightful view of God and his work in our lives. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 19, as I mentioned to you earlier, was basically a thank you note from the Apostle Paul. Something all responsible people do. You receive a gift, you send a thank you note. This is something we all learn. And it was a thank you note from the Apostle Paul to the Philippians for their generous financial support. But, but woven into this thank you here in these few verses is this wonderful view of godly contentment. That thing that we all want but most often miss. We have in these verses the Apostle Paul again demonstrating exemplary godliness that we must imitate as Christians. He told them to imitate him in chapter 3, verse 17. He told them to imitate him in chapter 4, verse 9. Here, Paul is demonstrating what it means to be content with the goal of us imitating him. I think this is one of Paul's most important things, or examples to follow. So where do we find contentment, Christian? Are you content? Where do we find it if, if we don't have it? Uh, many seek it with money, possessions, power, status, relationships, vocation, what have you. But I, I think my argument here is, is th- those things don't ultimately satisfy. They, those things don't ultimately bring contentment. And here's why. God's intentional design of what will satisfy us is different than external things that we might be pursuing. The the pursuit of contentment with external things is futile in everybody's experience. They never satisfy. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. It, It may temporarily dampen the yearnings of your soul, but it will not quell the yearnings of your soul. God is only interested in satisfying the yearning of our souls with himself, right? He's not going to allow something external to fulfill the deepest desires of your soul if his design is to only allow himself to do that. Which is why we jump from one thing to the next to the other. Paul gives us five principles of contentment here in these verses. Five principles of contentment. To help us understand godly contentment and be able to pursue it. I'm going to cover one today. we will take the next few weeks to cover the rest. I know there's two on your list, but um, be content. We're well, only going to cover one. Content person. Number one, a content person is confident in God's Providence. A content person is confident in God's providence. Listen to verse 10 again. I rejoiced in the Lord, Paul said, greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, I want to show you from that verse that a content person is confident in God's providence. Since the time that the Apostle Paul planted the Philippian church in Acts 16, the scholars think between 10 and 15 years had passed. All right, So he planted in Acts 16, 10 to 15 years passed, he finds himself in jail, the Epaphroditus shows up, he responds to Epaphroditus' news by writing this letter back to the Philippians. So 10 to 15 years. So the, the reason that, that they had no opportunity During that 10 to 15 period is because a lot had taken place. When the Apostle Paul, or after the Apostle Paul planted Philippi, he moved on, which which was his intent. His job was to plant churches in Gentile communities. And so he did that, and he hopped from from community to community planting churches. Sometimes it was a a friendly engagement. Sometimes he was chased out of of town and beat up and stoned and everything else. But he moved from place to place, and in the midst of that, you know, no one really knows why they may have not been able to support him, but Paul said they had no opportunity to do so. Some think it was because they lost track of him. Others thought maybe because they were so poor they couldn't afford or they didn't know his needs. Whatever the reason, Paul said they didn't have opportunity, and he didn't chide them for it. He didn't say, "Now you should have done better. I'm your missionary for Pete's sake. No, he didn't go that direction. He just simply acknowledged that they had no opportunity. When Epaphroditus arrived in Rome with this gift, Paul rejoiced greatly. And his rejoicing, this is important, wasn't because he received a great gift that he could go out and buy really good clothes. No, it was because it, this gift was evidence of their ongoing love for him and, I think more importantly, commitment to the cause of Christ. This gospel partnership, which has been running all over the place in this letter. It seems that the loving support of the Philippians had been absent because of circumstances, and Paul accepted his circumstances and their circumstances and rested in God's providence. He wasn't worked up about it, in other words. He was resting in the providence of God confidently. Believing that God was in control of his circumstances and their circumstances. He knew that God in his timing would meet his needs. He didn't panic. He didn't attempt to manipulate anyone or shame anyone or take things into his own hands as we often do when things don't go our way. Paul was at peace and content because he knew that God's providence rules everything. Everything. You know this verse, Ephesians 1.11. in him who, in Christ, in God, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, now listen, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Not some things, not only the pleasant things, all things. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Nothing bypasses the counsel of God's will in your life. This is a comforting thought, and I'll explain why in a minute. But we also know this verse, Romans 8.28, how can you talk about God's providence and not talk about Romans 8.28? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. A big struggle for us, and maybe I should just talk for myself, a big struggle for me is that I feel like I need to promote my own wishes if I expect to get them accomplished. If no one's going to bat for me, you know, no one's looking out for me, then what's the likelihood of me receiving all the stuff and comfort that I want? I'm willing to push through obstacles to get my way. Becoming frustrated or impatient is a sign of not trusting God's providence or trying to manipulate your circumstances. God's providence does not require miraculous events to bring about his purposes. Did you hear that? God's providence does not require the parting of the Red Sea for him to accomplish his purposes in your life. God's providence, and by the way, for God, Having him ordain and orchestrate the details of your life, non-miracle details of your life, is no more difficult than him splitting the Red Sea, just so you know what's going on here. God's providence allows for all the contingencies, events, words, acts, decisions in regular life to come together in such a way as to accomplish his purposes, Ephesians 1.11. Talk about infinite wisdom. His infinite wisdom and power weave all these things together to fit exactly as he has planned. To accomplish exactly what he has purposed. Proverbs 6.19, the heart of man plans his ways. Don't you do that? You plan. What's the rest of the verse say? But the Lord establishes the steps. You and I plan all sorts of things. When the day is over, guess whose plans were followed? God's. (laughs) God's. <laughs> the Bible's full of stories where God's providence is working its way out in the lives of his people, bringing glory to him and joy to his people. You remember Joseph, Jacob, David, Esther, Daniel, Paul, etc. All these people experienced the providence of God in such a way that brought about things in the midst of darkness and uncertainty and discomfort, things that brought them ultimate joy and glory to God. That's why, they're list, that's why they're recorded in Scripture, to remind you and I that this actually is what God is up to. What God did in the life of Joseph, he's going to do in your life. What God did in David's life, Esther's life, etc., he's going to do in your life to bring about the same thing, God's glory and your joy. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, so evidently describes what I'm saying here from the lips of Joseph The one who was sold into slavery by his own brothers, some 25 to 30 years after that sale, Joseph said this to the brothers that sold him. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You tried something, but God actually was overseeing all of that to accomplish his purposes, including the saving of your lives. See, something we need to understand about the providence there are four things that I want you to understand about the providence of God. You can list these in your bulletin, I've given you space. To understand contentment, you've got to understand the providence of God. To experience contentment, I should say, you must understand the providence of God. It rests on this. First of all, God's providence is irresistible. God's providence is irresistible. Listen to, and by the way, (laughs) this truth is sprinkled all over Scripture. I'm going to just choose a couple verses to support this. Isaiah 43, 13. God tells Isaiah, I work, and who can turn it back? I've got a plan. No one can stop me. That's what God said to Isaiah. I've got a plan. No one can stop me. You remember Job's, Job's conversation with God about God's providence? It was It's actually kind of entertaining to read that dialogue between God and Job. God asked Job, after all his complaints about the trouble he was in, God asked Job if maybe, Job, you should be the one who decides instead of me. Is that how you want this to go, Job? Do you want to be the one who decides how things work out? This is how the verse goes. Are you the one to choose? Really? You know what? I think if you thought about that for less than 30 seconds, you would say, no, thank you. Are you the one to choose? <laughs> Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that I please. Is that what it says? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases is what Psalm 115.3 says. And let me say something. And I think you would agree, we're happy about that. (laughs) Amen. So first of all, God's providence is irresistible, and we're happy about it. Secondly, God's providence is righteous. It's right. It's not wrong, it's right. Genesis 18, 25, shall not the judge of all the earth, that's God, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right, what is just. Let me say this. If God does it, it's right. Why? Because he can't do wrong. It is impossible for God to do wrong. And so if he does it, it's right. Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Not some, all. To know that God is always doing right. Never doing wrong is a great comfort for anyone going through anything. What you're going through is not wrong. As difficult as it may be, as challenging as it may be for your family or, you know, fill in the blank, it is not wrong. Meditating on this truth brings contentment and joy. What God does is always right. Well, is it right for me to constantly be sick? Evidently. Is it right for me to be unemployed? Evidently. Is it right for me for my child to run off and do this and that and other? Evidently. And you get into all sorts of challenging places when you start, you know, Threshing out the details. Our sin, is, this is interesting. Our, our sin requires God to act in our sanctification, right? Isn't that what sanctification is about? <laughs> God has to act because of our sin to sanctify us towards Christ's likeness. And when he does the thing that, he's, that our sins require him to do, we get upset about it. We 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 resist, we, we complain, we argue, we manipulate. And the reason he's doing these things is because of our sin. So God's providence is irresistible, it's righteous, and thirdly, it's wise. Everything God does is wise. We can never charge God with foolishness. The wisdom it took to create the universe and plan human history from beginning to end is the same wisdom and care with which he governs your life. It's no different from God's perspective. The wisdom it took to create the intricacy of the subatomic level is the same wisdom God plans the detail of your life. God can handle creating, structuring, organizing the subatomic level he can handle whether or not you get through that red light or green light. He can deal with your details. And because of this, because he is wise and allows only that which will bring him glory and us good into our lives, because of that, we can be content at peace, even joyfully at peace. And then finally, God's providence is loving. God's providence is irresistible, it's right, it's wise, and it's loving. First John 4, 8 gives us a definition of God. God is love, right? God is love. Everything he does flows out of a loving character. Nothing God does is unloving. Even down to you missing your flight, missing your light, losing your earring, breaking a fingernail, is all from the loving hand of God. Your circumstances are prepared specifically for you, arranged by a loving God to accomplish his purposes in your life. This brings contentment. Friends, a confident trust in God's providence is the foundation to contentment. That's the first principle. A confident trust in God's providence is foundational to contentment. We learned that from verse 10. Next week, we'll pick up and look at a couple more principles here on contentment. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your perfect wisdom, your infinite might. We thank you for um, orchestrating the events of our life to bring about your glory, and our joyful good. Help us to think on these things deeply. Help us to meditate on them. Help us to embrace them. God, I pray that Paul's instruction here, Paul's thank you note here in Philippians 4 will be of great encouragement. We'll have much influence over how we think about our circumstances. We'll, we'll bring about... Joy and contentment as the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit desires for each of us who know Christ. I thank you for being our God. I pray that we would be your humble, submissive people. And I pray this in the name of our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.